Welcome to the Plant Spirit Podcast on connecting with plant consciousness and the healing wisdom of nature. I'm your host, Sarah Artemisia, and I am absolutely delighted to introduce our next guest to the show today. Don Tipping is the Director of Operations at Siskiyou Seeds, and he's been farming and offering hands-on practical workshops at Seven Seeds Farm since 1997. Seven Seeds Farm is a small certified organic farm in the Siskiyou Mountains of Southwest Oregon. And the farm is designed to function as a self-contained life-regenerating organism. In 2009, they started Siskiyou Seeds, which is a bioregional organic seed hub that grows and stewards a collection of over 700 open pollinated flower, vegetable, and herb seeds. So Don, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for inviting me. Really excited to have a conversation here. I just love your work with seeds. I love your connect, your deep connection with seeds. And I'm always interested in looking at this relationship between the microcosm and the macrocosm. And you're clearly so connected to that in your work with seeds. And so I'm curious in your experience, how does growing plants to seed yield a deeper insight into the nature of a plant? That's a, a good question. And it's, um, you know, many of us who have experience, whether it's wildcrafting or gardening or farming, we perhaps maybe only have a, a relationship with plant for a, 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 a set amount of its life cycle. You know, for instance, maybe uh, we didn't grow the transplants, so we're just putting them in the ground. Uh, let's say broccoli. We buy a broccoli transplant at the farmer's market. We put it in the ground. We grow a head of broccoli. We cut it. We eat it. You know, we have a relationship with it. But you know, that plant. Like, do we know the Latin name? How was that Latin name? Or, or, or you know, how did somebody arrive at that? Where is that plant indigenous to? What is the climate of that wild ancestral plant that that made it evolve with a particular life cycle? Is it insect pollinated? Is it wind pollinated? Um, which other uh, members of its the same species will it cross pollinate with or not? Um, what is the total life cycle of the plant? Is it biennial, an annual, a perennial, um, a woody perennial, a long-lived you know, tree? And you know, so when you approach things wanting to get the seed, you have to understand all those, things. you have to be able to answer all those questions. Maybe not some of the, you, you don't necessarily need to know like what is the wild crop relative, although that will help you in terms of optimizing, growing it at the perfect time. You know, So for instance, with broccoli, it's from the Southern Mediterranean, from like Italy, that part of the world. So, you know, Mediterranean climate and it's technically a biennial in that area around the Mediterranean, the winters are really mild. So it would go over the winter and really thrive in the fall as a, like a broccoli that you'd recognize. But historically we didn't, people didn't go for big heads. It was more of a, you know, the florets, the shoots of broccoli and, you know, and then it flowers and all sorts of bees and wasps visit the really showy yellow flowers. And then it, it begins to dry down. So being in a climate like ours, where come mid-May or June, the rains stop and then it, it desiccates down. And, and there's different forces at work too. So we're, we really see like, oh, this plant, it's like these forces are streaming in, whether it's the 
moist cool of uh, spring that leads to abundant leaves and uh, you know the stunted flower buds that is what broccoli is and I'm just using this as an example but we can do this level of inquiry which is really just about being an observation like you don't need a book for any of this you can just observe it and then as the climate gets hotter it's flowering in response to those longer days and warmer temperatures and likewise the whole pollinator world is more vibrant at that time than let's say right now when many insects are still dormant or they're migratory and they haven't come this far north yet and then as it gets hotter the leaves begin to get smaller and they drop away and different fungal diseases might come in or aphids and we're seeing the plant is shifting to more cosmic forces like sun and light and then making seed pods that then dry up and then it you know it's ready to harvest seeds so i think when you witness the complete life cycle of a plant you really get to know it more and now that you have to do this you know many of us we can go out in the garden right now and harvest chickweed that we didn't need to plant it's just there uh if we take the time we can observe the flowers and we can eat it in salads or use it for medicine and it just grows we don't have to be as curious about it we can just accept it as like the white noise of the background, if you will. Um, it's just uh, like an ally that's there. But, you know, it, with us doing seeds, sometimes I'll, you know, like miner's lettuce has been one that I've been trying to, I'm like, well, to me, miner's lettuce is like a weed. It just grows. But some people, if they don't have it, they hear about it and they're like, I want that. So then they want seeds. So then look at it, like, where's the seed? What is the seed on miner's? How does it, how do you get it? Does it just drop it to the ground? How, how does one approach this in a way to take it like a song? It's like learning a song that then you're, you have to memorize it and carry it through its life cycle to the point you can put it in a packet or you know some vessel and give it to somebody else who then also needs to know, you know the background of the song, like when do you plant it? How do you plant it? How deep does it need light? And so I think seed in particular is an invitation much deeper into the whole um, story of a plant and what's interesting to me of having been involved in this work for you know nearly 30 years now is I used to quote and reference like my mentors and teachers and predecessors but over time when you begin to be that person that people look to for the information I realized like oh I really need to know this I don't really like I'm constantly looking things up on Wikipedia like I mentioned dragon fruit when we were speaking earlier like I don't know where dragon fruit's from I know it's related to Christmas cactus and there's a Chinese one that with yellow flowers and yellow fruit and I learned it's from Mexico and it's a cactus you know so like I think having this lifelong curiosity is something that like no one's ever going to figure out all the plants I'm sorry like there's chemical constituents and properties of medicinal plants or dynamics between insects and fungi and plants or other species that you know we probably just uncovered one percent if that so i think you know as i go on in this i'm like okay i'm going to stay in my lane more and more and just have this kind of like here's my little family of the plants i work with i'm not going to be an expert about all the fruit trees and all that like i can know a little bit and that's there's a principle i learned from uh, permaculture through uh, Tommy Hazel 
Tom Ward, uh, that's to be a, a jack. Uh, we know the saying, be a jack or a jill of all trades and a master, a master of none. But I think in our world today where, you know, nobody's just going to like give me a house or give me a car, these kind of things. So we use money. So having some skill, so be a jack or jill of all trades, but a master of one and like figure out what that is. And like with plants, when I was younger, I now see it's the folly in it of so naive thinking I could know all about medicinal herbs, fruit trees, uh, you know, basketry plants, all the vegetables, fruits, flowers, grains. And I'm just like, ah, no, there's like 585,000 species on the planet. You're not going to, and in those species, like think how many tomatoes are in just one species, you know? thousands probably um so it's kind of like john coltrane the saxophone player was once quoted as saying you know when talking about free jazz and improvisation he's like you have to learn how to play inside at exactly the right notes exactly the right rhythm before you learn how to play outside so let your curiosity and the plants are really bringing us into it seeing seeing a dragon fruit and being like well what does that plant look like that makes that kind of thing or a pomegranate or anything and then you know follow it as far as your curiosity leads you and then that it becomes part of you you know becomes like part of your your own your own personal story rather than something you read in a book or something and then you have to you know do that cycle um and, and I, I really appreciate sometimes the questions I get of people working on the farm. You know, like for instance, garlic comes to mind, like we're planting garlic and we're planting cloves. So it's just breaking apart a bowl. So it's technically a clone all the way back to like Uzbekistan or Kazakhstan or where, you know, the particular center of origin of those crops. And on that note, I totally encourage folks to check out an unsung hero of the plant world that should be taught in schools is Nikolai Vavlov, who developed the largest seed bank in the world in 1905. By 1905, he's a Russian botanist who actually died of starvation in a gulag prison from Stalin and his cohorts accusing him of being an intellectual elitist, when really what he was trying to do is get more plant species to avert famine and starvation because that was, he grew up with that. Um, but anyhow, to just follow what, you know, whatever we're curious about, whether it's herbs or grains or flowers and like, where do they come from? Where, you know, like dahlias, for instance, well, they were an important tuberous food crop uh, of the Aztecs and the Mayan people in Mexico. And then through colonialization, people took it in this other direction of being about flowers, not being about food. Um, so I think, you know, like that John Coltrane saying, like, learn how to play inside, like, learn, let, just kind of roam around in this giant formless room, you're kind of blindfolded, trying to make sense out of reality, just with your other senses. And then you're like, okay, this is what's leading me in. And it, it, like I was sharing earlier, like with their seed company, I don't actually from, I don't approach it that we provide a product that I struggle with that of the tokenization of nature and that we're commodifying everything and I think this current fascination with like cryptocurrency and nfts is just more of that same mindset to tokenize everything even in a digital non-tactile place so I see it the relationship with seeds and this is how I try and stay in right relationship because it's like 
one foot's in the world of like, I'm a father, a business owner, an employer, a community member, I have to like show up in good standing. And then the other foot is in my own, you know, lived experience in this body with a soul. But what am I doing is to uh, approach the work with the seeds of providing a service. So like one of the things that has been doing is I only have the certain things that I'm really interested in. Um, of the complete catalog of what we offer. So uh, there's one of my uh, employees, it's really part of my leadership team. I see her as a colleague, not as an employee, is really into medicinal herbs. She has a small farm herself. So she is the one that writes all our blog posts about herbs or researches new herbs to that we may wanna offer seed of. Um, we have another person that does flowers. You know, and then we meet as a team and kind of look at this, like, this is what you're passionate about. I'm passionate about this and kind of stay in our lanes so that we're speaking from that place of like youthful enthusiasm rather than um, that kind of old school, I'm the expert place. And in, in that service too, is like, well, once you have seeds in your hand, they're only so useful uh, unless you have the knowledge of what to do with them. So, you know, like I'm constantly redoing information about like how to make potting soil, how to like have a successful environment in which to start the seeds or what are the special requirements, particularly for some flowers and herbs around like stratification and light um, to help people be successful. Cause I'll, and then this is kind of the funny thing and this tears to like, we'll go super meta cosmic of like, all we are as like anything that's alive is photons temporarily inhabiting molecules. Like we're all going to die. And I don't know, like, and, and we go back to like the laws of thermodynamics that really is a deep, profound spiritual teaching that Newton stumbled upon and put it in the English language. And it, ironically, the Newtonian laws of physics he uncovered when he was only 23. That's when he wrote all this stuff down. But I think that was old wisdom, just like we're seeing with traditional ecological knowledge. So why I'm bringing up Newtonian uh, physics is that matter's never created or destroyed. It just changes form. So, you know, that's all we are. That's all the plants are. So likewise, you know, like right now I have a farm, we grow things. I work with other farmers, we grow things, we get it to seeds. Like sometimes it seems so futile. Like we grow these plants only to take the seeds. The plants all die, get composted, tilled back into the ground. Uh, we take the seeds, we give them to other people to grow plants that are just going to die. But that's what life is. We're just kind of this like snowball of energy that's really light. Like all life force, I think, comes from the sun. And, you know, we have different ways to articulate like all the names for creator. And that's fine. That's great. There's like a lot of different ways, but it's just this temporary thing moving through this physical plane of reality, but we tend to cling to the physical form as being the end state and what it is. And like I heard a quantum physics uh, physicist describe, if you took all the humans, like there's almost 8 billion of us, took away all the empty space between the atoms, all of us would fit into the size of a sugar cube. That's all it is. That's all we are. So most of everything is nothing, you know, which gets to kind of like a Buddhist Eastern perspective or just people that see the world more in terms of spirit. And, you know, like Steiner described that spirit and matter, you know, this, this interchange. And, you know, we have all these kind of dualities of 
And so the plant is that too. And it's, you know, the plant isn't trying to produce medicine for us or food for us or beauty for us. It's existing for its own state. And I think approaching from that curiosity, then we bring that more lighthearted openness to however we're working with it. And so I always try and return to that place with the seeds rather than be like, this is the best broccoli, it grows the biggest heads, you know, it's the darkest, which is such a materialistic place. And, and like, we're well, going to cut it up anyway. Why do you need big? You're going to cut it into bite-sized pieces. It, you know, like there's so many parts of how we approach it that are just focusing on that like sugar cube of matter that is totally missing. Well, like, why do you eat? It's like, well, for flavor and aroma. And like, it's a nice thing to do with other people. I have things I like growing. I don't even like eating. I just like looking at Swiss chard and eggplant. It just brings me joy or like eggplant, for instance, um, in my research, because I geek out on this stuff, there's a traditional form of uh, Hindu uh, dance where they take the flowers of eggplant and they lift up their eyelids, the dancers, and stick an eggplant flower up in there. And it turns the whole white of your eye red. So you become this like, uh, you know, incarnation, if you will, of Kali or Durga. Whoa. You know, so like when you look at an eggplant, it's not just about like eggplant Parmesan. It's like, there's a whole other thing going on there. Like in Thailand and uh, certain parts of Southeast Asia, they have dozens of species of eggplant. It's an important cultural thing and they become perennial there. So our relationship here in North America, 42 degrees North latitude here, the eggplant is a totally different thing. And we're maybe totally missing the boat, just like the dahlias. Most people don't know you can dig up dahlia tubers and eat them. And they're much like a uh, Jerusalem artichoke, a sunchoke, or yakon would be a closer relative. And that's, again, I think about like approaching with curiosity all of these things. And what are those certain plants that really teach us what they have to offer in the world? Um, in all these different ways. So um, I, I, yeah, I think staying in that place, I feel like that's art staying in our lane, like as a business and for myself as an individual who's like a steward of seeds is to just continually stay in, oh, wow, that's new. I didn't know that. Or I was wrong before. That's really, you know, what can you teach me about this? Um, so and I think that's a really important, and I'll kind of like close this little answer to your question with this of something that I stumbled across is that domestication is not an endpoint. Um, it's an ongoing process. Like that story is ongoing. There's people that use corn from us that do natural dyeing. Um, that's was probably not a traditional use of corn. Maybe it was, I don't know. But these are new varieties that I have colleagues that have bred them. So they're things, new things that didn't exist before with like higher levels of antioxidants and purple pigments and anything else. So, you know, in the future, it could look really different, you know, like what we're eating, what we're growing, what is medicine, what is beauty. Um, and, and all of that is open for interpretation. So that's how do we change this mindset, this like reductionist mindset of colonization of plants of like figuring it all out characterizing everything and move to i think what is the reality that 
everything started with light and then moved into the atomic elements and spin and resonance and frequency, there is no dividing line between fungi and plants or animals and fungi. Like where does the platypus fit in? Where do lichens fit in? Like this whole idea that we are, at least I was raised in of dividing things into boxes is not reality. That's not actually how reality works. So, and that can be a little unmooring, kind of like the matrix, like when you grasp like what reality really is, which I don't think it's that, but it's like, it's mostly the emptiness, the nothingness, and what are you infusing in that space with what you have in this lifetime? And I'd much, I'm much more interested in that conversation than that, uh, you know, avocation than the vocation of like, what do you do? Who are you kind of thing? Yeah, totally. And so much of what you're talking about has to do with that direct lived experience. And I'm curious, particularly based on everything you just shared in your experience, how does having a direct relationship with seeds help us to connect to life and life force? Well, I think, um, you know, what it, it still boggles me that the, the, just the, in one word, the potentiality, like a seed, it isn't anything. It'll just sit there being a seed for a hundred years, a thousand years, wait. And it only becomes a plant in relationship with water, soil, and light. Um, and the, the sower. And that's where I think like it, within my own personal version of cosmology is, you know, those elemental forces, you know, earth, air, water, fire, if you will, but fire, light, sun, you know, like they, uh, actually a significant amount of the heat and the earth is coming from the center of the earth. If that wasn't happening, it'd be really cold here. Um, but then our relationship with planting is the plant can't do that. You know, broccoli didn't move from Italy to North America on its own. People were a part of that. So in that space, like how are we participating in nature or participating in creation? And are we doing it with reverence and, um, or at least, you know, perhaps reverence is too large of a word and has connotations of religious trappings, like that you need to say the right incantations or something. Uh, I just recently learned that the word hocus pocus as a magic spell came from people sitting in church when it was all in Latin and they had no idea what was happening. And when the Eucharist, the you know, body of Christ was being described in Latin, and I don't know that Latin for it, it sounded like hocus pocus because the, the peasants would be there like, that's really, you're turning that bread into the body of Christ? Well, maybe if I say hocus pocus in other places, I'll be able to do things. But perhaps instead of reverence, because obviously religion has created a lot of problems on the planet and I don't need to go there, is awe. Just being in awe and wonder. And it's, um, I think that keeps us in right relationship of just the sheer power of like seed. I mean, what's happening inside a seed that's mind blowing to go from this thing that leaves the plant as this like hard little thing. And, or in the case of like a coconut, like a big fuzzy thing and can float across the entire Pacific ocean and become, you know, a tree. Uh, yeah, just I, every time I'm harvesting seeds, I, 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 I 
not every time, but every season when we're in seed harvest, they reach a certain point when we go from all this chaos, like what looks like a pile of weeds oftentimes. You know, sometimes I'll do farm tours in September and I feel a little self-conscious because it isn't like neat rows of vegetables because like a parsnip, for instance, becomes this eight foot tall brown bundle of sticks with seeds attached to it. It doesn't look like anything. It looks like you didn't take care of it. And that's, I think, part of the relationship with seeds is embracing the chaos. You can't make it be a certain thing. It has to go through its life cycle. So again, you have to just be like, kind of take a step back and not be engaged as much and allow nature to run its course. But then there's always a time where I'm like, I would look, we'll use the parsnip, sorry. I've taken all that like rough, coarse chaff and seed and then cleaned it down to, and then put it in a container. I'm like, wow, this is a lot of parsnips. This girl, lot the, just the potential of this is mind blowing. You know, to like have five gallon bucket of parsnip seeds could plant, like, I don't know how many, like 100 acres, 200, it's just staggering. And then we condense it all down. And like we have two seed rooms on the farm and it's still, it's, you know, we go about our, our work as people, but there's this certain palpable, like there's a lot of energy concentrated in there. Um, and I, I'm not a super like sensitive person. I don't have like fairies tapping me on the shoulder, but I do like when I look at a lot of this work of like, I'm just in service to the whole thing. I'm just like, what do I need to do? And more and more I'm running into like, I have a lot of limitations just as a human being, a lot of, so I need a better team that's empowered to have more intelligences because every person and their whole unique relationship with life, all the forms that shows up in whether it's animals or fungi or plants or the forms in between, it has a, a unique way of approaching that. And, um, Yesterday, we instead of putting out a seed catalog this year, because again, in, in in I like to take these ideas of like that I need a team that I'm investing in and put them into action. So instead of spending tens of thousands of dollars creating and printing a seed catalog that we mail out, we just send a postcard, color on one side, black and white on the other side of a cool line drawing one of uh, my team made a beautiful, like somewhat whimsical, but botanically accurate uh mandala and we said hey we're doing a coloring contest and i didn't spell it out but my intention like my spiritual intention is well winter time is about dreaming it's like you go inside like the seed deep down into this dormant state and there's things occurring in there but they're moving in slow motion particularly for those of us in the north and we see that in nature and we see the animals hibernate so i was envisioning people sitting down and coloring in this mandala that there's only some if you're a real plant person you're not going to make the corn bright red it's going to be green you know or maybe a little tinge of purple like so there's parameters but you're you're dreaming into your own mandala of what is your own uh creation so we did it as a little contest we said like hey well we'll give the winners you know, and the runners up, uh, some swag, like we make these sweatshirts or, uh, embroidered hats and, you know, just something it, it, it's a total token thing. But what was cool as an exercise for our crew to judge them and like, look at people's art and see into like, how do you judge art? And fortunately we had 
the original artist Jillian was there and I was ultimately like well you decide you're the one with the art degree and like you know and we we all the kids win anybody who said they were a kid they they win by default because I'm like that was my intention I was thinking of people sitting down with their kids whether it's theirs or nieces or nephews or whatever and just coloring you know get off the device and just do you know some good old-fashioned coloring um but I think you know from what I've learned from different like spiritual traditions as they approach plants is there's like it's like concentric circles that radiate out so the seed is a certain thing it represents but it's it's not like there's a mini plant inside the seed you can't open it up and see the plant. It just represents the potential of that because it relies on those next concentric circles of the soil, the warmth in the soil, the moisture, but not too much. And then all the right conditions of wind, not too much wind, pollinators, sun, but not too much sun, some cold, you know, like many uh, seed varieties require vernalization, you know, so that term, the vernal equinox, they need uh, shorter, like radish would be an example. If you plant radish, you know, now through April 1st, it gets enough cold fertilization to flower and then make seed. Um, but if it doesn't get enough, it won't do that. So yeah, like I kind of see it as all these different, uh, you know, energetic circles that go out and we can see our human efforts at describing this of energy fields and auras and energetics of like, we're just kind of tripping over this, this weird English language that was the language of commerce, ultimately. I wonder sometimes, like I know a lot of the Polynesian languages have uh, like Hawaiian only has 13 letters. Most Polynesian languages only have about 700 words. Whereas you look at like Russian has like 33 letters. So it's like those people in the North, I think about this in terms of like our approach to nature. And you look at the Polynesian cultures and they had all the canoe crops and I'm so fascinated, but, which are not really a seed-based culture because they it's subtropical or tropical. So it's things like turmeric and ginger and bananas and taro and tea leaves, uh, T-I, not uh, uh, camellia sinensis, green tea. Um, coconuts, you know, this whole relationship, but it just like reverberates through them as, with, as they moved around the Pacific uh, and then they, they carried it with them. So that's a very different approach to plants. It's, it's more embodied in a way because they didn't need to take seeds. They could take cuttings of things or like the coconuts themselves, they could just literally float and just land on the beach and grow. We got more coconuts, um, which is to this day, we don't know where coconuts are native to because we found them in Brazil, like all around ocean bordering countries. Um, Whereas you look at like Russian culture with the, it's all of its language. I have Russian heritage, so the Ukrainian to be more specific. Uh, yeah, their language that has all these harsh, like different letters for different consonant sounds we make in English. And they're like dealing with the cold of a very Northern environment and how it shaped the culture. And I am really curious about this as we, unpack you know kind of deconstruct uh colonialism in a way that creates curiosity that dissolves xenophobia so rather than being afraid of people that are different no matter what that we're curious how did you become that way what what you know it, 
point led it in that way. And that's where seed is this interesting reverberation way back. Um, like for instance, with corn, it came from a subtropical grass that's highly photosensitive that the Mayan word was teosinte, zia mexicana. And when I've tried to plant teosinte up here, you know, at 42 degrees north latitude, it gets like nine, 10 feet tall and then begins flowering in September because it doesn't know what to do with our crazy long days. So it just grows to be a big plant. Whereas in more equatorial areas, you have more equal day and night. There isn't much variation. So to think people somehow had a relationship with this you know, plant that the, the grains of teosinte are like little chicken beaks. They're these hard little triangles. They don't look like something you would eat. But it moved up and became many varieties of like flower corn and sweet corn and flint corn and popcorn in the Oaxaca, Mexico region, the central highlands of Mexico. And then it, you know, marched north. It didn't make it into um, you know, the United States proper as defined by its current political boundaries, which I hope in our lifetime we see change. Um, until 900 years ago, like not that long ago. So those like cultures of the Southwest, and this is where I think seed leads us into this curiosity of like, what is the overlap? And a, a colleague of mine taught me this term, uh, ethnoagronomy. And she worked at the uh, Fairchild uh, Botanical Garden in Miami, which is the center of uh, the repository for tropical uh, edible plant agriculture for the USDA is there. So if you ever get a chance to go, it's mind blowing in terms of tropical plants. Their biggest pest is iguanas. Um, anyhow, so back to corn, uh, this and this idea of ethnoagronomy of like, we can't divorce the seeds from the people. And I think right now we're looking at that with like biopiracy and GMOs and utility patents and intellectual property and cultural appropriation of just like, you can't disentangle that because the corn, you know, like always had a relationship with the culture and its intended use. So you look at that, we went from Teosinte up into central Mexico and it became all these different types of corn. It moved into North America. Of, of what I've learned, the Apache peoples were the first people to really uh, receive corn from their neighbors to the South and begin cultivating it. And then it made it all the way up to Saskatchewan as these little two foot tall plants, you know, cause a short summer, it didn't have time to grow a big 10 foot tall plant, but still made nice big ears. And many of those Northern corn, so the Anishinaabe, the Ojibwe, those peoples up there at the Canadian US border area are make these incredibly long years, but they're not tall plants because it's short summer. But again, subtropical in the summer. So it found a good niche there. Um, so I find that fascinating to look at that journey and how did it make it all the way up there? And then it, it keeps going like um, dent corns, which is the most common like GMO feed corn for livestock and stuff is a dent corn, which is a cross between a flour and a sweet corn. So higher sugar contents because they're oftentimes yeah, just grinding up all that stuff and sugars are important. That's not a traditional corn. That's a, a, a product of modern plant breeding. But we can find examples that are like throwbacks. Like there's this Oaxacan green dent corn that is a traditional variety from the origin place in Mexico. And then one more little story from Gary Nabham wrote this great book called, I believe it was uh, Truffles, Wolves, and Songbirds. 
about uh, he's basically an ethnobotanist. To me, ethnobotany is the study of native plants. Ethnogronomy is studying the you know horticultural crops, like what the ones we use. Um, they're very similar and a lot of overlap. You know, I think like if you were in the Amazon, you'd be an ethnobotanist, whereas if you're in the desert Southwest, you're more like ethnoagronomist studying, you know, more uh, closer relationship with saving seeds. Ultimately, I think once you go to that step, then you're, you're doing agriculture, whatever it is, even if it's acorns or chestnuts, you're, you're, you're doing a type of agriculture. Um, but in this book, he he's going through like a life crisis and he takes us along on this journey in this book Gary Nabam wrote where he decides he's going to become a Franciscan monk and goes to you know where Saint Francis of Assisi is considered the patron saint of nature and discovers the whole ecology there is in ruins like it's just his idealized thing it's not that way anymore like people are overgrazing and there's not at the chestnut forest that once thrived there and all that kind of stuff but one of the stories that he brings up, and this is where I think it circles around into like our spiritual journey of relationship with plants is that we have to look at things from many different angles. So like with corn, where did it come from? Have you grown it? Have you like made tortillas? Like making a relationship with the plant, but then take a step back and like, what is its role within, uh, you know, the, all of the different traditions for which it's been one of the staple crops. And I'll get back to the Gary Nabam thing, but my friend, Bill McDormand, who's been one of my teachers, he had a high altitude garden seed company for many years. And then uh, the Rocky Mountain Seed Alliance that does education around seeds in that region. And uh, he says there's corn people, wheat people and rice people predominantly, like those are the major empires of the planet. You know, and I would say, let's give honorable mention to the potato people, the quinoa people, the teff people, the sorghum people, you know, not to discount them. But when you really look at it, like the whole fertile crescent European thing is all about wheat. That was like 80% of your calories of your average person came from wheat. Then rice, which originated in the Philippines, became the grain of empires for the Khmer in Cambodia, like all those different cycles. Uh, you know, the Japanese empires, the Chinese empires, the ones that we have lost the names of those peoples. Um, and then the corn people were the people of, you know, Mexico, but then further down into Guatemala, Honduras, all that, and the Mayans, uh, the Aztecs, the Toltecs, those were, and, and we look still, I think it's something like 70% of the calories consumed on the planet are those three grains. So what's interesting is when um, you know, the first uh, Italian uh, settlers, colonists, whatever you want to call it, discovered corn. It, was, it made its way back to Italy by 1521. It was in cultivation in Italy. But it came, you know, so a seed is just a seed, but without the echo of the stories and the whole, like, culinary culture, how do you use it? Um, you've divorced it from this, this energetic sheath that goes with the plant, you know? And I think that's where this, like, you know, ethnogronomy or ethnobotany being curious like this and understanding the deeper levels of the story. And I find the older I get, the more I'm revisiting history from different vantage points to have a deeper understanding rather than thinking we're the zenith 
of the human species. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of evidence that we've, we've taken some significant steps back. Mm-hmm. And I, in part, it's because I think a lot of us are divorced from that essential wisdom of nature and all of its forms. And the only way you get that is to slow down and use your senses and listen. Like reading, reading just gets you to that place where like, I know for me, I wanna go to like, where in Italy can I see this stuff? Where can I see the old stone mills where they ground polenta and then look around and see what I see um, and, and let it affect me like the seed that's in the soil and you know the water and the warmth and all that is affecting like what that potentiality is. But yeah, again, that book, uh, Wolves, uh, Wolves, Truffles and Songbirds, excellent, just little power packed kind of skeleton key of all these layers of, of colonization and refugees and people divorced from their original instructions from nature. And somewhere back, we all had those original instructions for each of us. And I think that's part of our, at least for me, my work and other people, whatever they can do, whatever they want, but is continue to find those, whatever they are. And, you know, obviously plants are a big part of that. Yeah, that's huge. There's so, so much of what you just shared and really the, a huge takeaway that I get out of that in this moment is about the value of curiosity and having a direct relationship with nature, the value of understanding the wisdom of nature. And clearly you live so much in service in your work with the seeds, with the plants. And so tell us where can people find out more about Siskiyou Seeds and your work? Um, I I used to maintain uh, a blog for Seven Seeds Farm, I've since just folded it all in Siskiyou Seeds. So we have a, like uh, it's growing tips, like a blog portal, and then that accesses you know articles I've written um, and YouTube videos, uh, workshops, and 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 not just myself, but like my colleague Taryn Hunter, who writes all our herbal uh, blogs and. Uh, Stacy Denton, who's contributed a lot of our cut flower um, information over the years. So, you know, just siskiuseeds.com. I am going to be starting a uh, podcast soon called The Agrarian Renaissance, which to me is just like, how are people artfully approaching solutions? You know, Renaissance, it's like, we need new ideas. And those new ideas have no choice but to be informed by the old ideas. So, you know, much like what we're doing here of having a conversation about this, of just like, I'm curious to learn from others about like, how are we addressing this? What could be approached as like an Armageddon moment for nature with artful, um, you know, Renaissance? Because I I think like fight, I don't want to fight those forces. I much would... Uh, much rather have a, you know a creative like well if that's how you're going to do it that's not how I want to do it here's how I'm doing it maybe there's something of value here for you so we offer a biennial training on the farm called the seed academy that I've condensed down from five days to just a weekend because I find sometimes just like seeds uh, and and not everybody like needs all the details right away but be, being exposed to some and the other participants and making those connections 
then you know people can run with that and go. So I haven't pinned down dates, but it'll probably be uh, mid-May is when we offer our spring one. And it, you know, it's ostensibly about seed saving, but it's you know it's residential. Like you come to the farm and camp there, or if you're local, commute. Um, so you know you're really experiencing like what is the you know. Uh, 21 years in to uh, taking a pretty raw piece of farmland, here's like one version, you know, maybe there's something somebody can learn. Um, so that's kind of, rather than like teaching permaculture classes or something like, well, I know about seeds. So we'll talk about like, and I feel like you have to start there. It's kind of like how Miles Davis, you know, said, how do you learn to play jazz? Well, you learn to play blues in every key. Well, learning blues in every key is like, you kind of have to learn the botanical terms of the plants. If you want to learn the terms in other languages, great. But mostly we've agreed on like, here's binomial nomenclature. Here's how we describe things. Here's how plants pollinate. You know, you can describe them as male and female parts of a plant, but the plant, they're not male and female. It's just pollen producing and pollen receiving. So, you know, I try and just lay out, you know, here's the basics. These are, you know, like kind of the mechanics. There's a lot of magic that happens in between for different plants um and then you know like kind of see what that looks like in practice for us on the farm so to me i feel like that's the primary offering we'll see how long i continue doing it you know i'd, I'd really love to see more people take up just doing these different forms of experiment experiential education based on their lived experience in situ in the environment where it happens and because um, they're all going to look so different, you know, we should not, there is no formula, even though there are like these basic building blocks, these like constituents. Um, so I'm always fascinated when I see new things arrive of like, oh, wow, that's cool. Those people are doing that over there and, you know, offering up their unique interpretation to what their relationship with plant seeds, whatever it is. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. And having done your seed Academy, I highly recommend it for anyone who's interested in learning more about seeds and seed saving. And also I'm curious for folks who are also interested in purchasing seeds with that. Is that also on siskiuseeds.com? Yeah. Yeah. We're constantly kind of tweaking our website and trying to make it really clear and understandable and growing tips. And, you know, some things we only offer in uh, packet sizes, other things bulk, because really our main mission is we're providing a service that, like including teaching people how to save seeds so that we become obsolete someday because the culture of seed saving has gone like wildfire and so many people do it because there was a time when we didn't have seed companies that it was part of our culture and that you wouldn't leave that work to somebody else you and your community would take care of it so that's that's my deep life prayer is to do something that i become irrelevant because i'm going to die so it'd be nice if i'm like irrelevant before that point you know, like rather than be an unfinished book and, you know, the work of like putting seeds in packets becomes irrelevant because we have a whole, like one of my uh, former employees, he has a company called Lineage Seeds where he works with a potter and they make these cool little clay pots. They fill with seeds and a scroll all about like the story of the seeds and a little cork, you know, and they're, they're more like a gift kind of thing. Like you can imagine the price of those is more expensive than a seed packet. But I think what he's doing, uh, his name is Jared Haygood. He's out uh, near Boulder, Colorado. 
is trying to evoke that old relationship, like the original instructions that people would have with seeds, where it would be, he would understand the magnitude of what that represents and all of the work, not just from the person handing it to someone else, but all the generations before them. Like there's a great Bruce Coburn song where he's like, if you had a dream like mine, to be able to walk with the power of a thousand generations. Like we would talk about seven generations, thousand generations, because we all come from that. We had no choice. Like it's all, you wouldn't be here if you didn't have at least a thousand generations before your point. So how are you walking in the world in that way? Um, and that's, you know, that's a, a big, big challenge in our modern techno industrial reality that many of us currently live in. So. So right now, buying and selling seeds is part of that, but maybe it won't be in the future. And um, I, I, I wanted to touch on one part of why we didn't do a catalog is the money that I normally would invest in that. I invested in raising our starting wages and adding, uh, really having a deep, honest conversation with my whole team about what is a living wage, uh, pay time off, sick pay, healthcare benefits, you know, all these kind of things. And I'm like, if I don't invest in the people and same with the seed growers of like, I shouldn't tell you what you sell your seed to me for, you know, the work that goes into it. I'll pay whatever you tell me it is. So again, I think we have to change out of that commodifying way where we're trying to get a deal on everything and the real essential work, whether it's herbalists, healers, those that are, are helping life improve, whatever they charge, that's what it's worth. You know, like none of these people are getting rich off doing these things with the earth, as far as I can tell. They're rich in life. So that's been, I, I think, a deep uh, inquiry and, you know, using Cisco Seeds too as a tool of, uh, of or, or like we use the term leverage and Seth Godin, he coined the term a ratchet which is like, it's specifically 15 millimeters. You have specific leverage. So I only like with a seed company, we only can like really address certain things. But I think like right livelihood, land access, uh, honoring all the things that went before us or something that is part of that that we can address uh, that, you know, I think is in alignment with the gift from the seeds, you know, that we're, we're like immeasurably blessed by the everything nature gives us. So thanks for letting me add that part on. Yeah, it's so important. I, I love that you're doing that. And clearly you're really living in service to the gift of the seeds and, and really listening to that, what that means in all facets of life. So thank you so much for, for your work, for your deep alignment and commitment to your life path and the work that you're doing in the world. And, and thanks so much for joining us today. Yeah. It's such an honor to have you here. Thanks. I really appreciate the opportunity and that you've done all the work to get uh, this platform up to this point. And I wish you all the best success in that. Oh, thanks, Don. Yeah. And thanks so much for listening and joining us today on the Plant Spirit Podcast. I hope you enjoyed it and please follow to subscribe, leave a review and look forward to seeing you on the next episode. Mm-hmm.